the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine, I hope you had a great week. Now, I did take some time this week to decide on what the subject would be, but I did find something and uh, it's going to be the Masters of War. So this one, we're gonna, we're probably going to have a lot of parts to this, but I probably won't do them all at once. So this week will be the first of our series about the Masters of War. So we're going to pick out some of the great military generals that we've covered in the History of the World podcast library. We're going to start with the Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses II. Now, Ramses II, we have to go back to ancient Egypt, the New Kingdom and the 19th dynasty. He was born at the end of the 14th century BCE and the pharaoh Ramesses II had an epic reign and his great reputation may have been based on his own propaganda as much as it is on his own achievements. His most memorable exchange was with the Hittites in the Levant. Ramesses was now Ramesses II, the pharaoh of the Egyptian kingdom and he would instigate a number of construction projects to stamp his mark on the kingdom. Temples would have been erected at Thebes, Memphis, Karnak and Abu Simbel. However, despite all of the attempts by Ramesses to leave a lasting legacy and honour the deities of the land, the land still had to be protected and provided for. So military defence and offence were both vitally important as soon as Ramesses became the pharaoh. The construction projects would initially have to wait. Firstly, it appears that the Mediterranean coast of Egypt was being subjected to raids. The raids were being conducted by seafarers, which meant that defending the land bridge to Asia, namely the Sinai Peninsula, was not enough. Considerable warriors were attacking from the sea, and we see them being referred to historically as the Sherdan people. Ramesses II certainly knew of the Sherdan people, and knew that they were a force to be taken seriously. These people were very well equipped and very dangerous, and Egypt 
needed a good strong leader to deal with the issue. Not only did Ramesses II deal with the problem, but he also managed to coerce some of the Sheridan warriors to become part of his own army. And this is depicted in Steely relating to Asiatic campaigns. Many historians refer to these as among the first known sea peoples, but this is too early to be associating them with the late Bronze Age collapse, which would not be a major issue until a hundred years later. Ramesses II would turn his attention towards the lands of the Levant and the main rival for land and resource, the Hittites. Ramesses would launch a number of campaigns into Canaanite lands during the 1270s. Remarkably, the Sheridan seafarers who joined Ramesses' Egyptian army were actually described by Ramesses himself as originally being allied to the Hittites. His own father, Seti I, had taken the city of Kadesh after the Hittites under Sipiluliuma I had taken advantage of the civil crisis in Egypt during the Yamana period of the 14th century BCE. After Seti I's death, the Hittites under Muwatali II had moved in to take the city back. Ramesses II was not going to let this go, and in 1274 BCE he launched his biggest campaign yet from a modern military centre constructed near the old Hyksos capital at Avaris. 20,000 men left the base with Ramesses himself leading them. This leads us to the Battle of Kadesh, which is a very significant ancient battle, and as such we intend to devote next week's entire podcast episode to the battle itself. So we're not going to cover this battle in detail this week, purely because we intend to focus on the lifetime of Ramesses II and his life. What we will say is that the battle was a considerable battle of wits and tactics between two great armies. The Hittites had the upper hand before retaliation by the Egyptians caused the Hittites to flee. Upon chasing the Hittites away, the Egyptians had put their remaining units in a vulnerable position and they then too had to retreat. So the result of the battle was a bit of a stalemate. Ramesses had settled for the decision to put the Hittite city of Kadesh under siege, but this proved to be an inconclusive action as Ramesses decided to head back to Egypt safe in the knowledge that things could have turned out to be a lot worse but that the Hittites now had first-hand experience of what it was like to be in the heat of battle with the Egyptians and would not underestimate their abilities next time. So it could be even translated as a bit of a moral victory for Ramesses, all things considered. It is suggested that tens of thousands of men were engaged in battle at the Battle of Kadesh, and if the summaries of historical battles such as the Battle of Megiddo some 200 years previous, then a considerable amount of people would have died. And in the case of Kadesh, not a lot was achieved by either side. The Egyptians had been battling for the lands of the Levant for quite some time. From the 15th century BCE, the new kingdom of Egypt had come into direct conflict with the dominant force in the region, 
the Mitanni. During the 14th century BCE, the Mitanni had weakened and the Hittites took advantage of their western provinces and by default this would bring the Hittites into direct conflict with the Egyptians. It was during this century that the Mitanni began to crumble from within and the Assyrian element in its political system standing up for itself and taking over. In the meantime, Hittites and Egyptians continued to struggle for Levantine lands right through into the current 13th century BCE, but now the Middle Assyrian Empire had become an expanding entity and it was looking at the lands of the Levant. Both the Hittites and the Egyptians recognised the Assyrians as a viable threat to their interests. Muatali II was the Hittite king when Ramesses engaged with the Hittites at Kadesh in 1274 BCE. It was now the 1250s and there was a different king on the Hittite throne. Muatali's brother, Hattusheli III. Both Ramesses II and Hattusheli III recognised the Assyrian threat and agreed to negotiate about it. It is not known where the agreement took place or whether the two monarchs actually met each other. But with the growing Assyrian threat, the Egyptians and the Hittites didn't have to like each other. But instead, they needed to have a strong diplomatic understanding. How do we know about the treaty? Amazingly, we have recovered both an Egyptian version from Egypt and a Hittite version from Anatolia. So we have a representation of the treaty from both participants. Essentially, the treaty, which was agreed in 1258 BCE, pledged that both Egypt and the Hittites would not battle again for Levantine lands and that a border would be agreed. This alone suggests that the losses at the Battle of Kadesh must have been high, even though we have no record for it. Both parties must have been fearful of the potential loss of resources of another battle of the same scale and how openly vulnerable they would be to an Assyrian attack. This relates to the other major point of the treaty, which was the agreement that both parties would support each other in the event of attack, either from internal rebellion or from a third party. So although the Assyrians were not specifically named, they had to be the suggested aggressor in this hypothetical scenario created by the words of the treaty. Another instance where we have seen this kind of agreement previously in the History of the World podcast is in the case of the Romans and the Carthaginian Sicilians agreeing not to attack each other while the Epirates of the Balkan Peninsula was attacking them both in the 3rd century BCE and we found out about this back in episode 9. Much as the Romans and the Carthaginians didn't like each other, they both knew that it was sensible to not exhaust their valuable resources against each other when there was a valid third-party threat. 
One thing that the Romans and the Carthaginians did not pledge to do, however, was to defend each other should one party be attacked by a third party. The Hittites and the Egyptians actually went this far with their own treaty, such was the threat of the Assyrians, and they needed their own enemy to be strong to ultimately protect their own interests. This is the earliest known peace treaty between two nations, and as such it has become a highly regarded historical event and document. A copy of the Hittite version, written in cuneiform, was presented as a gift from the Turkish government to the United Nations, and this replica is now mounted on the walls of the United Nations headquarters based in the American city of New York. Ultimately, and in the year 1213 BCE, at the grand age of 90, Ramesses II died. He had outlived many of his wives and even his own children. His passing symbolised the passing of a great golden age in Egyptian history. In fact, things would never be the same again, as the kingdom was now entering the period which we know as the Late Bronze Age Collapse. His son, Merneptah, would indeed succeed him as Pharaoh, probably almost 70 years old himself. Nonetheless, Merneptah was still able to dish out a good beating to the Libyans, as his great father would have done before him. Ramesses II reigned over a glorious kingdom which saw great advances in military prowess and great constructions which survive as an awesome legacy to his reign throughout the 13th century BCE to this very day. He epitomised the great Egyptian rise from the political uncertainty and instability of the Amarna period. He continued the good work of his predecessors and made Egypt great again. After the time of the Battle of Kadesh, Egypt's area of influence had never been greater. The kingdom stretched from the environs of Kadesh, of modern-day Syria, in the north, and stretched down the Levant coastline, including Damascus and Megiddo, across Sinai to the new capital city at Pyramuses, and then up the Nile, past Memphis and Thebes, before going on to the cataracts, including the second cataract, where the temple structure was built at Abu Simbel, all the way south to the fourth cataract at Napata. There will always be those who debate whether Ramesses II was the best pharaoh that Egypt ever had, and that is debatable to put it mildly. The reason why Ramesses II got his own podcast was because his reign is absolutely iconic of the new kingdom of Egypt and his longevity meant that he was able to complete projects that other pharaohs may not have lived long enough to achieve. The wealth of the country meant that he was able to leave a legacy of incredible constructions which also tell us stories of the politics of Egypt. Some may call him the expert of his own propaganda, but I'd challenge them to show me any great ancient leader 
and indeed more recent leader that didn't use propaganda to enhance their influence. Ramesses II's mummified corpse was discovered at the Valley of Kings within the Theban necropolis in 1881, a time when Egyptology was of great interest. The mummy was contained at the Valley of Kings until it was decided that it may deteriorate and should be removed. After being transported to Paris in France in the 1970s for inspection and preservation, it has been sent back to Egypt where it can be found today in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. For our next uh, Master of War, we're going back to the Assyrian Empire and we're going to be talking about Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, Tiglath-Pileser III usurped usurped the throne of the Assyrian Empire in 745 BCE. He reformed the Assyrian military and set the Assyrians up to become the largest empire ever seen in the world up until this date. The Assyrians had grown tired of previous regimes and as such they decided to revolt against the royal court and Tiglath-Pileser was installed as the new king. He would immediately start to reform the way that the country was being run by creating new political regions that would be governed much more effectively than previously. Around 80 provinces were created in the first seven years of Tiglath-Pileser's reign and as such each province would be governed by a loyal civil servant who would tax the population correctly and provide local forces to join the Assyrian army. The army would quickly become the best in the world. Some of the excavated artefacts reveal bronze scales, which appear to belong to a form of lamella armour, which is a type of armour made from small metal scales laced together. We can also find evidence of bows for archers. The bows would be created by using pieces of horn glued to wood and a sinew string attached to create the elasticity required to propel the arrow. The arrow itself would have a head made from iron and it's the successful use of iron which makes a difference. Iron was the new bronze and the Assyrians were very adept at using it. Archers would be accompanied by their own individual shield-bearer, who would enable the archer the time to fire the perfect shot in the heat of battle. The shield-bearer would be carrying a huge shield, which would effectively surround the archer from the front and from above, thanks to the shield's curved lip. Although the shield was made from reeds, the archer's helmet was made from iron and would offer protection to the top and the sides of the head. It is believed that Assyrian archers had the capability to fire arrows as far as half a kilometre. With their iron-headed arrows which were cleverly carried in a quiver, the opposition had very little way to defend themselves, especially if they had been subjected to the work 
of the Assyrian slingers. The Assyrian slingers would accompany the Assyrian archers and they would attempt to destroy opposition shields so that the archers could have had more chance of finding their targets. The Assyrians often used slingers in the past, but during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser III, they appear to have been very much a part of the organised unit, now with their own lamella armour and their own iron helmets. The bulk of the army, however, would be made up of heavy infantry. These soldiers would carry their own lance and shield, with the lance being useful at close quarters. The shields would be made from leather and would be held on the arm for defending specific attacks, as opposed to the standing shields for protecting the archers. Cavalry and chariots would accompany this fighting unit and the results were incredible. Suddenly, the Assyrians had become an almost unstoppable force. The Assyrians also seemed to have a serious weapon in the siege tower, which could be put to use when besieging an enemy city. A battering ram protruding from a mobile tower, complete with archers at the top of the tower, and very likely a large amount of infantry using the mobile tower for cover. They would even cover the vehicle in wet hides to prevent the enemy from setting it alight. After a successful siege, Tiglath-Pileser III had a reputation for kidnapping the city's elite as a means of removing those individuals most likely to incite a rebellion. Another interesting factor in the way that the Assyrians dealt with conquered enemies was to take them en masse to a completely different part of the empire and resettle them. This may sound bizarre in principle, but it would make these populations more dependent on their Assyrian rulers and less likely to rebel. This would also create a multicultural Assyrian population as people began to lose a part of their ethnic identity since they were no longer living in their homeland. In the books of Kings, in the Hebrew Bible, there is a reference to the Assyrian resettlement of Israelite people elsewhere in Assyria. Through campaigns, Tiglath-Pileser III would re-establish a Mediterranean coastline for the Assyrian Empire. When the Chaldeans seized the throne of Babylon in 734 BCE, Tiglath-Pileser had the ability to deploy a force to seize it back and subsequently Tiglath-Pileser decided to rule Babylon himself, therefore bringing Babylonia directly into the Assyrian Empire. By the time of Tiglath-Pileser's death in 727 BCE, the Assyrian Empire had reached the city of Tyre, just north of Israel. Tyre itself still exists today as a city in the modern country of Lebanon. Our next Master of War will be Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was a Persian before there was even a Persian Empire. In the 6th century BCE, the Persians lived in the Median Empire, but under Cyrus, the Persians seized control of the Medes 
before extending their imperial influence all the way from Iran to the Anatolian Peninsula and then conquering the mighty Babylonian Empire to set up the first great Persian Empire under the Achaemenids. So let's recap. From the beginning of the 7th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire dominated the Near East. While the Assyrians were dominating, a movement of Indo-European language speakers migrated to the lands of southern Elam, forming the city-state of Anshan. The Median Empire would grow to the north of Anshan and Elam, and to the east of Assyria. At the end of the 7th century BCE, the Babylonians would regain sovereignty from the Assyrians and would rise up against them alongside the Medes. This would spell the end of the Assyrian Empire. The Persian city-state of Anshan would come under the influence of the Medes and the Medes would conquer the lands of the Euratians before reaching the Lydian kingdom of Anatolia in the west, while the Babylonians would rule over Mesopotamia and the Levant. The local ruler of Anshan was Cambyses, and Cambyses had a young son called Cyrus. When it comes to the stories of Cyrus's childhood, we only really have the historical accounts of the Greek 5th century BCE historian Herodotus. We won't dwell on this too much, as it involves tales of child swapping and deception with Cyrus growing up within a family of a shepherd. It comes across a bit far-fetched, but we don't have anything to challenge it. We also have to accept that King Astyages of the Medes was the maternal grandfather of Cyrus, although some scholars doubt this. When Cyrus came of age, he would go on campaign with his father Cambyses to the Battle of the Persian Border, a battle penned by the historian Nicholas of Damascus, who was alive 500 years after this period, but interestingly not mentioned by Herodotus. It may be that Cambyses suffered lethal injuries during this battle, which would lead to Cyrus becoming the king of the Persians in his father's place. The Persian campaigns against their former overlords, the Medes, continued and many local rulers and military leaders defected from King Astyages of the Medes to King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus would go on to defeat Astyages at the Battle of Persagadi in around the year 550 BCE. And now the Median Empire would be a vassal of the Persians in a turnaround of power. So let's be completely clear on what has happened here. Over the course of the previous few centuries, Iranians had moved southwards and settled the former southern Elamite lands of Anshan. The Medes would subjugate Anshan as a vassal state of its vast Median Empire before Anshan, under the rule of King Cyrus, would rise up against and ultimately defeat and take control of the Median Empire. We refer to Cyrus and his Iranian race as the Persians. 
and the Persian rulers traced their ancestry back to an individual called Achaemenes, which is why we call this the dawn of the Achaemenid Empire under its first ruler, Cyrus the Great. Once again though, we find that ancient societies are labelled with Greek names, especially in the English-speaking world. Achaemenes is the Greek version of the name Hakamanish, and Cyrus is the Greek version of the name Karish. Even the name Persia is an exonym, and an exonym is a name that has been created by a foreign race. So to say that Cyrus the Great was the king of the Achaemenid Persians might be a westernised version of saying that Karish was the king of the Hakamanish Iranians. It is worth pointing out that the Achaemenids were just one of many Persian tribes who would ultimately coalesce under Cyrus's rule. However, we will carry on with the Greek names for no other reason than to maintain a comprehensiveness about the podcast. So we will now explore what Cyrus did after he had conquered and taken over the Median Empire. Cyrus was hungry for more power and the next kingdom on his list was Lydia in Anatolia. Lydia had previously defied the advances of the Medes under Cyrus's great-grandfather, King Cyaxares. This time, it would be Cyrus himself with his confederation of Persian tribes and Median remnants who would be challenging the Lydians. However, the Lydians under their own king Croesus were prepared for this challenge and they knew that it would be a formidable challenge as they formed alliances with the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Initially, it would look like a similar situation to when the Medes had challenged the Lydians and the result was a bit of a stalemate. After some initial and inconclusive conflicts, Cyrus and the Achaemenids pursued Croesus and the Lydians deep into Lydian territory and engaged them in conflict at the Battle of Thimbra in 547 BCE. Croesus and the Lydians would retreat back within the confines of the city of Sardis, which Cyrus besieged for two weeks before the city fell and Croesus was captured. This would mark the end of the Lydian kingdom which had emerged from the remnants of the Hittite empire a few centuries previous. The Achaemenids now had control of Anatolia. Now, if you recall, after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, the lands of the former Assyria were split between two empires, with the Median Empire to the north and the Babylonian Empire to the south. The period that followed has already been mentioned during Volume 2 of this podcast, and specifically during Episode 10 on the ancient religion of Canaan and Phoenicia. As Assyria was falling, this would have dire consequences for the Egyptians who would be helpless in watching the fall of their only Near East ally at the time. The Egyptian pharaoh, Necho II, would lead an Egyptian army to Carchemish to stand alongside the remnants of the Assyrian army against the Babylonians, led by their king Nebuchadnezzar II, 
in 605 BCE at the Battle of Carchemish. But the Babylonians would see off the Egyptians, sending them back to Africa. In the aftermath, the Babylonians would annex the ancient kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem, a city which would rebel against their new rulers by delaying their tribute payments. As a result, King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylonia would deport the Jewish people of Jerusalem to Babylonia after plundering Jerusalem and destroying the sacred Solomon's Temple during the siege of Jerusalem in 587 BCE. The feelings of the deported Jews in Babylonia are captured in Psalm 137 of the Hebrew Bible. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Also, we wept at our remembrance of Zion. On the willows, in the midst thereof, we hung up our lyres. From there, our captors demanded a song, and our desecrators mirth. Sing us from the song of Zion. How can we sing the song of God on strange land? Zion is another name for the lands of Jerusalem, the lands that the Jewish people call their home, and the sacred land that the Jewish people yearned to return to. The words of this particular psalm have resonated through the ages with seemingly countless musical renditions over the course of modern history. One of the most well-known in pop culture was the version recorded by the Euro-Caribbean pop music group Boney M, released in 1978. The Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people would continue until the Jewish people were freed, and they were freed by none other than the hero of today's episode, Cyrus the Great. After Cyrus's successful conquest of Lydia, he would turn his attention south towards the Babylonian Empire. Firstly, Cyrus would need to secure those northern Elamite lands centred around their capital city of Susa in 540 BCE. This would bring Cyrus to the doorstep of the Mesopotamian lands of the Babylonians, now under the rule of King Nabonidus. Cyrus would be able to strike the Babylonians in the following year, engaging them in battle at the Battle of Opis. The Babylonians were no match for Cyrus's mighty Achaemenid Persians, and the Babylonians would crumble in defeat, allowing Cyrus to march into Babylon and be proclaimed the new king. The Babylonian Empire would now become a part of the Achaemenid Empire, which would include Jerusalem. Those captive Jews who wished to return to Jerusalem would be allowed to do so, where they would begin construction of a new temple to replace the one that the Babylonians had previously destroyed. Not all Jews would return to Jerusalem, and those who would not return would be the ancestors of the more modern 
Iraqi Jews. Historians cite the Babylonian conquest by Cyrus the Great as a good thing. The Babylonians have been portrayed as the bad guys in this episode in history with their apparent bullying of the Jews. However, the kingdom of Judah did have a reputation for being a stubborn people who would resist the imperious attitudes of the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them. Whatever your opinion is, it does appear that Cyrus would allow the Jewish people the freedom to live their lives wherever and however they pleased. The kingdom of Judah was a relatively small part of Cyrus's imperial ambitions. One other important expansion of Cyrus the Great's reign, which can sometimes be overlooked, is the eastward expansion. With all the glory of victory over the Medes, the Lydians and the Babylonians, we should not neglect Cyrus's success in extending his influence over the lands right up to the Indus Valley. This would be the first time that the Indus Valley would be linked to Mesopotamia within the same empire. It is possible that Cyrus would attempt to campaign northwards towards the Kazakh steppe where he would meet a Scythian people called the Masagetae. Herodotus, the Greek historian, is quite fair in his assessment that there are multiple theories. But it is during conflict with the Masagetae that we suggest that Cyrus the Great met with his death. Our final master of war is Themistocles. Thucydides described Themistocles as a natural genius. During the 5th century BCE, he served on the Greek side in the Battle of Marathon and was responsible for the command of the naval fleet during the second Persian invasion of Greece, where the Greeks successfully repelled the mighty Persians. Themistocles was barely an adult when Clisthenes made his democratic reforms of Athens in 508 BCE. And this would only bolster Themistocles' chances of becoming a prominent Athenian citizen. Not born of an aristocratic family, in 524 BCE, Themistocles was able to take advantage of the changes made to the Athenian constitution to carve out a political career for himself. He became an archon of Athens in 493 BCE, with the archons being the nine chief rulers of Athens who were elected as decision makers. During the first Persian invasion of Greece, which climaxed at the Battle of Marathon, we believe that Themistocles was there, and most likely commanding alongside Miltiades and Callimachus. With victory under their belts, the Athenians knew all too well that the Achaemenids would be back, and Themistocles believed that the Athenians would need to increase their naval power. So even though the Athenian hoplites had won the day at the Battle of Marathon, Themistocles was able to still convince the Athenians to triple their naval fleet 
although as we will find out later, they will still be vastly outnumbered by the Achaemenids. Themistocles was more than happy to lead this new naval fleet himself. It would be Themistocles who would have the unenviable task of deciding what to do. With the sheer numbers of the Achaemenids approaching the southern Balkan Peninsula from the north, Themistocles knew that they were outnumbered. Heading the Achaemenids off in Thessaly would not be possible. Themistocles would need to pick a spot where he could equalise the Achaemenids. He would have to select a narrow pass between the mountains where the Achaemenids would need to proceed in limited numbers to give the allied Greeks an opportunity to pick off as many Achaemenids as possible. The only place that Themistocles felt that he could do this was at a place called Thermopylae. The biggest problem with Thermopylae would be that it would be much further south than Themistocles would have liked. It would mean that the Allies would need to allow the Achaemenids to overrun Thessaly, which was arguably going to happen in any case. Secondly, if the Allies lost their position at Thermopylae, then it would leave the route to Athens wide open. So it was a one chance only opportunity for the Allies to make it work. The Allied naval fleet which if you remember from earlier in the episode, Themistocles bolstered in size, would be dispatched in the waterways between the island of Euboea and the Greek mainland, just off the coast of the northern Euboean city of Artemisium. Blocking this waterway would ensure that the Achaemenid naval fleet could be kept distant from supporting their land forces. So now the Greek army and navy knew where they were going to be dispatched. All they would do now is wait for the imminent arrival of Xerxes and the Achaemenids. The Battle of Thermopylae was over and the Greeks had been crushed. News of this disastrous result reached Themistocles who ordered an immediate retreat of the Greek naval fleet from Artemisium. There was no value in the defence of that stretch of water now. The naval fleet was needed further south. Of course, this was the problem. Thermopylae was strategically very advantageous compared to all other locations for the Greeks. So defeat at Thermopylae was something that the Greeks absolutely needed to avoid. The route was clear now for the Achaemenids to descend on the city of Athens, something that the Athenians fought so hard to protect just ten years earlier at the Battle of Marathon. Now there would be no way to protect it, and the Athenians had to make the choice about whether to stay or go. Although Themistocles had famously outwitted the Achaemenids against all the odds, he would still have to oversee the return of Athens to the Athenians, who would have to pick up the pieces of their destroyed city. 
This must have been an extremely poignant time for the Athenians, who had built and evolved their city both physically, spiritually and politically for many generations, and this was the outcome of their proud history. The effect that it would have on the Athenians was profound, as it would be for those many Greek polis who had been similarly affected. The Greek polis had matured very suddenly in the light of what happened at these Greco-Persian exchanges, and now they believed that they were worthy of their place in the world, and that they could consider themselves, at the very least, equal to the mighty Persians. The Athenians would have it in their minds that they would build Athens back up and make it bigger and better than ever. Those generals of the Greek polis, Themistocles, Pausanias and Leotychides, would surely become folk heroes to be celebrated for the rest of their lives all across Greek lands. Until we remember, that is, that this is the disunited land of the Greeks and that we are talking about the world as it was two and a half thousand years ago. Pausanias, the hero of the Battle of Plataea, was never going to be popular among the Athenians due to their distrust of the Spartans and many rumours of him colluding with King Xerxes I about a Spartan alliance with Achaemenid Persia surfaced, followed by accusations of being a helot sympathiser, which would put him at odds with many Spartan elites. The Spartan ephors, who were the magistrates, pursued Pausanias, firstly attempting to starve him out of a temple that he was seeking refuge in, before he would emerge from the temple and die. Leo Tychidas, the hero of the Battle of Mycale, returned to Sparta, but before long was accused of bribery in a completely different episode. So he was exiled from Sparta and died around 10 years after Mycale. Themistocles, the Athenian hero of the Battle of Thermopylae and Salamis, would return to Athenian politics until he fell out of favour and went into exile in the Peloponnese. As for Themistocles, the Athenian hero, we mentioned that he went into exile in the Peloponnese, but there was really no way that the Spartans would allow such an influential Athenian to live out his years comfortably so close by, and so he was forced to flee again. But this time, it was to Anatolia, and from what we can understand, in his final years, he was allowed to govern the Ionian city of Magnesia, and this permission was given by the Achaemenid Persian king Artaxerxes I. So the man who so famously defeated the Persians in Greece ended up serving them in Anatolia. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, The History of the World podcast magazine featuring the Masters of War. Now, we're going to do some more of these, but in terms of the Masters of War, it don't come any bigger than what we've got in store for you next week. We're talking about the Mongols. We're going to start on that journey. There's going to be a series of episodes focusing on the Mongols, their incredible expansion 
uh, right from their humble beginnings on the eastern steppe, uh, right the way through to their descendants and uh, Timur and uh, the the end of the Mongol legacy, if you like. It's a, an incredible story. We're going to be looking um, closely at uh, Chinggis Khan and we're going to be focusing on some of the key battles. So it's going to be a series of episodes coming up. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to them. I can't wait. Um, as for this episode, thanks very much for listening. Um, a lot of the material used in this week's podcast was uh, stolen from other History of the World podcast episodes, as we usually do. So some of the um, some of the excerpts were stuck together, and it, it wasn't really the full story, but it was just really a... Uh, dive into what we've already spoken about these individuals if you want to learn more about these individuals then go back and listen to the full episodes from volume two and volume three if you want to know uh, which episodes drop me a line drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com and I'll be more than happy to tell you where to go to find out more about these wonderful masters of war that we um that we refer to and make our world history so much more colourful. Now, if you appreciate the podcast and you uh, you appreciate all the work that goes into it, then you might like to consider supporting the podcast. Um, then you can do so at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com, our website, where you can click in and find out loads of interesting information about the podcast. Um, but while you're there, just click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You can become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And when you do, you can qualify for gifts and rewards. And uh, there is some bonus material that uh, has not been published on the general feed. And if you want access to them, there's something like 23, um, 23 episodes. They're all debrief episodes. And um, I think a couple of the original episodes that were re-recorded, they're there exclusive for subscribers. So just go to the subscription uh, on Spotify. You can you can access it through the link in the podcast description. You can also get um, ad-free um, listening as well there. So that's that's worth considering. As ever, I'm just going to remind you, if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, then please, please, please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com. I do enjoy reading your emails and I like to read them out on air as well and give you your, uh, give you your brief bit of fame. Anyway, that's it for this week. Next week, the Mongols can't wait. Until then, have a great week and be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.